Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting here from Ted Walsh's recent article in the Deseret News. With two words, a single sign captured the profound impact President John F. Kennedy had on the 125,000 Utahns who energetically lined Salt Lake City's streets for his visit in September of 1963. The plea was simple, come back. Don't worry, a smiling Kennedy said, I will. That promise would be lost to tragic history. Exactly eight weeks later, 45 years ago to the day, this was written five years ago, a JFK was uh, dead, shot on the street in Dallas when he sat in the back of the same open limousine that had carried him through the streets of Salt Lake. That's from Tad Walsh's uh, article from several years ago in the uh, Deseret News. Many of us remember where we were the day President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And Friday, tomorrow, marks the 50th anniversary of that tragic event. Even if you weren't even alive on that day, you have been affected, of course, by the, that event and the events that have followed. We're going to open up the phone lines to you on the program today to express your memories, your thoughts, and your feelings. Of course, you've probably been seeing the documentaries and such. The airwaves have been flooded. We decided to, to join in to give you a chance to express your thoughts and feelings and memories. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com and on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And we have a couple of comments there right now that we'll get to as well. <clears throat> uh, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We're joined by Ross Peterson, Emeritus Professor of History at uh, USU. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Uh, so what are your memories of that day? Well, I was an undergraduate here at Utah State at the time, uh, just a couple weeks before my wife Kay and I got married. And I was in between classes, and I stopped at a payphone in uh, Old Main to talk to her, to call her, and she told me that he had been shot. Mm. Uh, that was the first announcement, uh, that, and we weren't sure that he had passed away, or uh, we knew that he'd been taken to a hospital, and then we ran over to the student center where they had put up a TV, and then we watched... Uh, and then I went to a German class, and it was canceled, and we went into a, a long and, and very, very sad and tragic weekend. Mm. Let's hear a couple of clips here. We have, uh, all of these are famous for Walter Cronkite. Let's hear one of these. I think this is where he's, uh, he's announcing the president's been shot. This is Walter Cronkite in our newsroom, and there has been an attempt, as perhaps you know now, on the life of President Kennedy. He was wounded in an automobile driving from Dallas Airport into downtown Dallas, along with Governor Connolly of Texas. They've been taken to Parkland Hospital there, where their condition is as yet unknown. Uh, so Governor Connolly, I think, was, was wounded? Yes, he was. Uh, he was sitting in the limousine in front of the president to the side, and... Uh, he, he was wounded uh, through his torso. Yeah. Let's hear another clip. Uh, this is the announcement, I believe, of the, the death of the president. The president of the United States is dead. I have just talked to Father Oscar Hubert of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. He and another priest tell me that the pair of men have just administered the last rites of the Catholic Church to President Kennedy. I asked the father, is Mr. Kennedy dead? And his quote, he's dead all right. And just a few seconds ago, I talked to Thurman Ward, the Justice of the Peace of Garland. He's now here at the hospital to apparently officially declare that the Chief Executive of the United States has expired. President Kennedy has been a 
assassinated. It's official now. The president is dead. Women here in shock, some fainted. Grown men, Secret Service men standing by the emergency room, tears streaming down their face. There's only one word to describe the picture here, and that's grief, and much of it. It's official. As of just a few moments ago, the president of the United States is dead. Larry and Logan uh, sent that clip to us from, from YouTube. It's it's a part of a longer uh, clip. And he points out that that sounds like a young Dan Rather. It, it sure sounds like Dan Rather. Uh, at any point, in any case, I'd forgotten that. The Secret Service, you know, would be in tears. Um, this, oh, was, this was a shock. It's a shock. I mean, uh, at the time, you know, for the nation, it wasn't that, uh, you know, everyone always does support a president. But to have a young president like that assassinated... And in a new era of television where you have the beginning of instantaneous communication, to have that spread throughout the country was, uh, you know, was totally shocking. I mean, he had been very, very vigorous in getting out into the country, being out with the people, and had a big agenda that he was trying to, uh, you know, move. He had uh, civil rights bills, environmental bills. You know, when you talk about the trip of him coming out here to Utah, I think it was part of a thing that was engineered by his Secretary of Interior, Stuart Udall, to have him go through Montana, Idaho, the Northwest, Utah, because they had a number of national parks they were trying to get authorized, the Wilderness Bill, things like that. At the same time, they had just signed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, there, there was just a ton of things going on, and so consequently— uh, he and his wife and family, the young children, were, you know, made for television. And so it was very, very personal for a lot of people. Uh, even more personal than it was some present, I would imagine, because of the television connection and, and because of the, the charisma of, right, of the man. I'm right, right. And, uh, you know, you go back to the first inauguration and the, uh, you know, call for what can you do for your country, not does your country, what can your country do for you, things like the Peace Corps. And then all the young people, uh, you know, working, it, it was just uh, a, a new energy. Uh, you know, I mean, he'd been a World War II veteran. We were only a few years after the war, really, in retrospect. And so there was a, a tie between generations that he displayed. He was part of that generation. And I, I think we forget that sometimes because he's sort of trapped in time as, as this young Right. I mean, uh, I'm amazed at how many young people came out of the war, finished their education, and then went into politics, went into public service, and did it very, very quickly. Uh, He surrounded himself with a cabinet of people that were in their 30s and early 40s, uh, you know, colleagues of his that that he trusted, but also had the same amount of energy that uh, they wanted to transmit out into the country to, uh, you know, create this new frontier, as they called it. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's hear that you made reference to that, uh, the inaugural address. This is still one of the most famous inaugural addresses uh, ever. This is uh, John F. Kennedy. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. 
So this, and he makes reference to this in his inaugural address, the torch has been passed to a new generation. I guess there was that feeling. Oh, I, I think definitely, you know, and I think a lot of times uh, with that kind of intensity and emotion, the opposition is is uh, is fairly intense as well. And, uh, and so there was a lot of opposition. I, I remember, you know, just five years after the assassination, we moved to Texas. My first teaching job was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so many times we'd visit the site and in, in doing research so, so quickly after, there was a lot of animosity toward President Kennedy. Uh, some of it had to do with, uh, you know, accusing him of treason, some calling for impeachment. It may have related to, uh, uh, you know, his nuclear test ban treaty, trying to, you know, meet with Khrushchev a couple times, some tense, some better. But uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, they'd look nuclear war right in the face. And I think both of them decided this isn't the direction we want to go. But there were a lot of people who feared, you know, we're still in the Cold War atmosphere. And so there was a lot of opposition uh, to him and uh, full page ads in the Dallas papers, you know, uh, wanting to indict him for treason. And it, uh, you know, when you look back, it's a very, very emotional kind of tense time. And they were in the process of beginning their campaign for 1964. So, uh, you know, I guess that to have an assassination in the middle of, of that kind of atmosphere is one of the things that uh, is, is so damaging because it, you're left with dreams unfulfilled. Mm. That's part of it, isn't it? You, you, that's part of Camelot. You know, the, the dreams unfulfilled. Right. Who knows what would have happened? They, you know, would have right. Because an awful lot of the things that that they stood for and wanted in that administration, they were able to achieve under uh, President Johnson. And of course, for a year, which must have been unbelievably tense, when you read both the Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson biographies, but Robert Kennedy stayed on as Attorney General for a time and then went and ran for the Senate in New York. But, uh, but the things like the, I mentioned, the, uh, those national parks, the wilderness bill, the civil rights bill, Medicare, all of those things were, that were causing so much uh, anxiety among people that were on the extremes, uh, Lyndon Johnson was able to, to complete. And then you have the whole saga of Vietnam right in the middle of that. Mm. And the calls for... Uh, uh trial for treason that's uh, that's sort of an echo of, of today uh, not only president obama you 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 heard that but mm-hmm. president george w bush and, right and, and and you know i think the the unique aspect of the american presidency i mean it is still uh, an amazing thing that came out of the constitution that you could elect one of your own as a citizen for a period of time and and give them executive leadership of a nation and then because it is political and because you are voting, and in this day and age they're always running or snipping, and they have for a long time, uh, it, it means that, uh, you know, there's rarely unanimity. There's, there's rarely even a, uh, a honeymoon after an election because everyone's after each other again. And so it's, uh, it's difficult, and for the most part in our history it's, it's work, but, but I, I was thinking today how— sad it is over those years that we have had, you know, the four assassinations of presidents plus about five or six other attempts. And, uh, and that's really tragic. 
Let me uh, share uh, Stephen McIntyre's thoughts. He responds on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. By the way, we're talking about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary. We have with us Ross Peterson, Emeritus Professor of History at Utah State University. Several ways you can get to us. We're opening the phone lines. I'd love to have your perspective. Even if you weren't alive, what uh, what are your thoughts uh, on that day? Uh, 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. UPRaccess at gmail.com. And, of course, you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Here's uh, Stephen McIntyre. Uh, he's, he quotes from himself, the opening paragraphs of a newspaper essay he says I wrote on the occasion of John Lennon's death. And so quoting himself, It's no revelation that truly shocking news impresses indelibly on the mind the ordinary details of life. Yet I still wonder at the clarity with which I will always recall life's uh, mundane events the day I learned of John Lennon's death. For many Martin Luther King's and Robert Kennedy's assassinations evoke the same kind of memories. And nobody who was old enough to comprehend the significance will ever forget the day John Kennedy was shot. John Kennedy's assassination occurred on a school day. I remember it like any other. Not unpleasant, slightly overcast autumn day. Early that afternoon, the teachers and students were summoned to an assembly room where the principal announced that the president had been shot and killed. We would all be going home early, he said. One particularly vivid recollection is the kid, I forget his name now, who became so agitated that he began fluttering around the hallway, chirping his incredulity. What a lot of bull. What are they talking about? I don't believe it. The other kids, me included, were impressed by this display of assured skepticism, but it proved his undoing. A young teacher, on the ragged edge after hearing the report, picked the kid up by his neck, forcing him to stand on his toes and slammed him against the lockers. Now, 17 years later, we're sadly treated to another day to remember. That's uh, Stephen McIntyre remembering uh, not only the death of John F. Kennedy, but uh, Bobby Kennedy and, and John Lennon. Um, Ross Peterson, these these times are indelibly impressed upon us. Oh, I, I think they are. And, I, you know, in the opportunity of, I've had to teach both uh, recent American history as well as the history of the civil rights movement, one thing that I think it's really, really difficult for our students today to understand is it is not that you got kind of cushioned to this type of thing, but I was just remembering back, you know, in in 1963, you had those Birmingham demonstrations, then you had the assassination of Medgar Evers, the NAACP field secretary in Mississippi, and then, you know, the March on Washington, then the bombing of the church in Birmingham. Uh, then, you know, the overthrow of the DM government in Vietnam and, and their assassinations and then President Kennedy's. And it was just it was just like you couldn't escape it. it uh, but when it hit the president and and it, it was just a national uh, tragedy and no matter what political persuasion it, it should be and it should cause people to stop and reflect and and realize that although the president is is a symbol He's also a human being with parents and children and a spouse, and uh, and nothing deserves this. And so, so it always causes you to reflect. And then, of course, the rest of the decade, it, it didn't get much better. Yeah. Did did you ever? I don't know. You ever get used to it? Uh, that's the wrong word. But it. But it. it uh, there were killings so often of public figures during that decade. I'm not sure you got you got used to it, but it. Uh, and you didn't expect it, but but you were kind of uh, 
uh, you know, and, and you'd have a number of leaders. Uh, I remember first reading about Malcolm X's premonitions, Martin Luther King Jr.'s premonitions. Even before they died, they, they thought they would be taken out, and they were before they were 40 years old. And, you know, President Kennedy was, uh, you know, barely 45, and, and Robert Kennedy, uh, these, were, these were men that were in their prime. You know, they seem, at my age now, it would be like children being, but they, being shot. But, but they, were, they were just on the edge of really trying to accomplish great things. And no matter, you know, if you were as radical as Malcolm X was portrayed or you were as... Uh, you know, moving toward more of a social agenda like Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, when it happens, again, you go back to that what might have been. And I think the the great ifs of history are often surrounding the assassinations. Mm. Yeah, that is a poignant thing, what might have been. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we'll, t- we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we'll get into uh, why assassinations, especially in America, where we're president's only in for four years or eight years you can just wait him out uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that as well um, and uh, much more and uh, we hope your recollections your memories your thoughts perhaps they aren't memories uh, in my case it's not really memory either but uh, we're all affected by uh, by this and it's the 50th anniversary of uh, jfk's assassination uh, tomorrow uh, we uh, would love to get your uh, thoughts on this on our utah public radio facebook page uh, you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We have another 20 minutes uh, left to get uh, your thoughts in, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. More following the break. This is Lloyd Berenson, Director of the Bear River Health Department. When PM 2.5 levels rise, everyone's body has a different response. PM 2.5 is made up of small particles that can get deep into our lungs. These particles can cause symptoms like coughing, wheezing, or nose and throat irritation. For some, the effects of PM 2.5 may be great, and others may be able to tolerate elevated PM 2.5 levels without feeling negative health effects. But everyone needs to make health decisions based on the actual pollution level and your individual sensitivity. To find actual pollution levels, visit air.utah.gov. Remember to stay informed and protect your health when PM 2.5 levels are high. The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our Community Engagement Reporting Project. To join our public insight network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas. And we're opening up the phone lines to you today throughout the program. Another 20 minutes left for you to express your memories, thoughts, feelings. As we're all, uh, if not remembering this, I don't really remember it. I was alive, uh, but just uh, two years old. Um, but we're all affected by this. And uh, of course, you probably have not been able to escape um, you know, the, the documentaries and such. We're, we're remembering this uh, tragic event in our history and we'd love to get your perspective. The way to reach us is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We have uh, a caller, Larry from Logan. Welcome to the program. Glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. 
Yeah, um, I could mention about when I was a boy and it happened, and basically for three days the country stopped, and I think the the, the other kicker was when um, Oswald was assassinated, and that, I know, upset my parents almost as much as the Kennedy assassination. But the other point I wanted to make is that the that assassination kind of ushered in a, a pretty dark decade afterwards. The Vietnam War, lots of other violence, Martin Luther King assassination, Robert Kennedy assassination, and it almost seems in some ways like it was a fork in the road, and we went down one of those forks because of it. So the, the event has significance at many different levels. That's very interesting, fork in the road. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll have... Uh... Professor Peterson commented that I wanted to follow up, uh, Larry. Uh, you said your parents were almost as uh, upset at the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald. Is that they, they wanted justice done? They felt they were robbed of justice. Is that why? No, it wasn't that. It was more like uh, the the sense that the country was just unraveling. Oh, I see. Coming totally I chaotic. See. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Bye-bye. I think one of the things that contributes to that, Tom, to Larry's comment is that. You know, on Sunday morning, a, a good share of the country was watching everything on television. And when they brought Oswald, you know, out into that corridor and Jack Ruby stepped forth and shot him, a high percentage of the country was watching live. This wasn't like a TV show. It wasn't something that, I mean, they were watching live. And and it was, it was oh, my land, you know, what next? Mm. And uh, and it and that of course with and then Ruby suffering from terminal cancer and and so you, that's one of the things that I think contributes a lot to a lot of the ongoing conspiracy uh, things. But I, I thought another point that it was intriguing to me is often forgotten in this is the amazing courage of Jacqueline Kennedy. I mean to even come forth and uh, and be there when Lyndon Johnson was sworn in in front of Judge Sarah Hughes, but then there was a behind-the-scenes struggle between her and President Kennedy's father on where the burial should be. And, uh, and, you know, so you've got this tremendous assassination, but on a, on a very personal basis, you've got a lot of decisions that have to be made fast. And, and where should he be buried? He was a veteran. She felt he should be buried at Arlington. And the Kennedys wanted him buried at the family compound in Massachusetts. And finally, Robert Kennedy, again, uh, you know, as close to a brother as you could be, uh, you know, really negotiated. And they were able to get uh, uh, a lot of the cabinet actually were in the air going to Japan for a, a conference with the Japanese, turned in midair, stopped at Guam, got refueled, and came right back to Washington, D.C. And so. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, and uh, and Secretary of Interior U- Udall actually got together and, and made an exchange of property. So the uh, Eternal Flame site where the Kennedys are buried had been in Interior and then was given to the Department of Defense and became part of Arlington National Cemetery. Um, I wonder if you could uh, follow up on Larry's comment, and when we do have a, an email coming in here as well. Uh, interesting comment about, at least in retrospect, as he looks back, it feels like a fork in the road. Um, well, I think, I think it, 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 the, the Lincoln assassination, I think, similar. 
because you had you had big issues in front of you. And that one was over reconstruction, how you put the nation back together, and what do you do with the uh, you know the four million freed people insofar as providing uh, citizenship and inclusion in the country. And I think I think you know ninety eight years later, you you are facing a lot of those major decisions. And and one of the things that comes through this is. Uh, you know, some of the decisions we made, uh, maybe relative to Vietnam, relative to Cold War, President Kennedy and his team may not have made. Some of them stayed on with President Johnson. It may not have been different. But I think psychologically for a lot of young people, there, it, it was a, a time where, you know, the, the call to action of the president in his inauguration uh, led to frustration and disillusionment, distrust, and a feeling that that you weren't going to be able to accomplish all the things that you hoped to accomplish in behalf of each other mm. and yourselves. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it was trying to make the world a better place, what we could do to bring freedom around the globe, as he talked about, as well as a greater amount of equality and inclusion internally. And so I, I think in that respect, I think that's a very, very good point because uh, you're not sure what would have happened under that kind of leadership had they been able to fulfill their destiny. Mm. Uh, let's see. Professor Jeannie Johnson from uh, USU has the following question. Uh, how did this successful assassination impact the evolution of the Secret Service? Uh, that's a very, very good question, and uh, and Professor Johnson, you know, is is well versed in in the security measures. But it's a, it's honestly an ongoing discussion because, you know, the Secret Service uh, took in in the Warren Commission report uh, quite a bit of the blame for uh, you know not being able to protect the president and, and save his life. And so a number of things were uh, were changed in, you know, the open motorcades, the amount of agents assigned, the background of the assignments, rules of what they could do and could not do uh, in their personal lives when they're on assignment. And, and of course, the, uh, I think uh, in the, you know, what's sad is even with all that, in the assassination attempts on President Ford and President Reagan, people with handguns were within 15, 20 feet. Uh, when you go out into a crowd and the American president or even come out of a hotel and there's only so much you can do. But gradually, I think uh, the internal investigations that took place, uh, the, uh, the physical shape of the Secret Service agents, the... Uh, you know, in, including females, including people that would be within, within the crowd, not just out right around the president. I think they really intensified that to a great degree. Uh, it's still not a perfect system, you know, and uh, uh, but but a higher standard is required of those agents. And, and when they foul up, as they did a couple of years ago, then they're gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's uh, there's no room for... Uh, for mistakes when you're in charge of uh, protecting the president of the United States. And we tend to forget some of these attempts. I mean, we, we breathe a sigh of relief. There was an attempt on President Truman. That, uh, well, yeah, that was about in 1950, and it was actually they were remodeling the White House. And, you know, just a few years later when uh, Mrs. Kennedy went in, they did it again. But uh, 
Uh, He was living in what they called Blair House, which wasn't very far away, and Puerto Rican nationalists who wanted uh, not just statehood but independence uh, made an attempt on the president's life. Didn't get close to him. Uh, Secret Service, uh, one person was killed. Uh, I think some of the uh, attempted assassins were killed. But it was, you know, gunfire right there in the streets of Washington near the Blair House, right on the steps of the Blair House, actually. And then even some some successful, you know, deaths of presidents sort of fade into the background. We we tend to forget the assassination of President Garfield, and President McKinley. Yeah, yeah, and the, and you know what's sad is, you know, we talk about the post Kennedy assassination and all that, but we had three presidents assassinated within a thirty five year period: President Lincoln, President Garfield in eighty one, and President McKinley in in nineteen oh one. And uh, all with handguns, all at close range. Uh, again, Secret Service, if they didn't have it, they called that time. And they didn't really create it till after the McKinley assassination. But uh, I don't know if you remember that movie, Lincoln, how, you know, in a given day, people would just come off the streets and come in and want an appointment with the president. And this one guy, Charles Guteau, had done that many times with Garfield, wanted a federal job, decided the only way he was going to get recognition and make a name for himself was to kill the president, just walked up by, behind him at the, at the railroad station in Washington, D.C., and shot him in the back. And uh, the bullet lodged near his pancreas. He lived 80-some days and then died uh, because they were afraid to do surgery. Uh, you know, a lot of people argue the doctors probably did more to kill him than the bullet, but... Uh, and then 20 years later, President McKinley out in Buffalo, and uh, that was just uh, an anarchist who, uh, who in an assembly, in a kind of a, you know, McKinley was greeting people at the at an exposition, and just the guy shook, reached forth to shake his hand and shot him in the chest. Mm. Um, President Jackson, the guy tried to shoot him. Jackson took his cane, started beating on him. Uh, President Roosevelt, right before he was inaugurated down in Miami, a guy stood up on a chair, uh, killed the mayor of Chicago, missed Roosevelt. I mean, it, it's tragic, mm. but uh, but it is one. It is a big part of American history with uh, with uh, that people for whatever reason, most of them because they're crazy, most of them because they want to get attention. Uh, go after the president. Yeah. I was going to ask you the reason. I guess in a lot of cases, it's not a political reason. No, uh, and that's one of the tragedies, of course, of, uh, of many of the assassinations, the Lincoln assassination, although they did hang you know, the conspirators, and that was more obvious what they were trying to accomplish, or they killed John Wilkes Booth when they captured him. But, but you don't have a trial. You don't know what the motivation was of the people uh, in the Kennedy assassination, Oswald, uh, you know, what the whole uh, reasons were. And you, you know, try to find out what he did when he was in Russia, what he did when he went to Cuba, different things like that. But but the uh, the motivation is differently. I mean, one of the women who tried to assassinate President Ford was part of the Manson family. And another woman was, uh, you know, just felt she was a radical and uh some think that the president is a symbol of power, and, uh, and mostly it isn't. It isn't really very personal. Mm-hmm. And to this day, the president is pretty vulnerable. You, you, Secret Service can only do so much, right? Yeah, they do, and they, and they do a lot more now. And of course, what it does is restrict the president from doing what uh, President Kennedy did in Salt Lake City in 1963. And 
what he did in Great Falls and the other places where they would just get off the plane, get in an open-air vehicle and, and have a parade down a street and then go have a meeting, give a speech, and and then they'd take him to see some potential monument or national park site. And, uh, and I think one of the things that uh, people forget about President Kennedy is going back to his uh, PT-109 days, he, had, he wore, uh, you know, President Roosevelt had the braces on his legs from polio. President Roosevelt, or President Kennedy always wore this heavy brace on his back. His, his back was in pretty awful condition. And so to have him get out and, and do a lot of the athletic things that he'd done younger when he was younger was really, really hard. I mean, it had to be fairly staged when he'd go on these extensive trips. Mm. Uh, let's uh, get to a couple more comments here. Uh, by the way, we're talking about the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, it's 50 years tomorrow, and uh, so we've all been thinking about this as, as the media reminiscences have, uh, have come down uh, down the pike, and uh, we're joining in. Phone lines are open for you, for your memories, or perhaps you don't have memories, but uh, perhaps have thoughts and feelings about the uh, death of President Kennedy, anything else relating to uh, to President Kennedy. Um, and the way to reach us is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number, toll-free anywhere you are. You can reach us on email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We've got a picture here of President Kennedy standing up in the limousine. This probably would have been the same limousine in which he was assassinated uh, just eight weeks later in uh, in Dallas, and here he's uh, obviously traveling uh, past the uh, the LDS Temple. He's in Salt Lake. He was on a Western swing. Here's what uh, Shalane Smith Needham says from our, from our staff on our Facebook page. She says, "My mom remembers that day. She said it was like a dark cloud had come over the nation. She heard the news while she was driving that he had been shot. Later in the grocery store, one of the clerks confirmed to people that he was dead. It was such a shock." that the clerk nearly fainted while trying to pass along the devastating news. Uh, Professor Peterson, I, I think that's, that's probably fairly typical across the nation. Yeah, it really was. I remember uh, my German teacher at Utah State, uh, uh, Mrs. Supernovich, who was an immigrant, uh, had been in Europe you know, through World War II, made her way to the United States, a fantastic teacher, and she was so personally devastated that I'll never forget her response. And it, and part of it was really tying into the country and the great dreams that uh, the country had. You know, if you if again we've just gone through uh, the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, but you go back and and when you have an opportunity to reach down deeply for your better self, and when you're going to solve things like a civil war, or where you're going to create an atmosphere where uh, people of any minority feel included and feel part of, and you fulfill that uh, preamble to the Constitution where it talks about we the people or Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence. Anytime you reach down for that better self and something slaps you across the face, either personally or symbolically, it, it is devastating. And I think many people idealistically really believed that, you know, this should not happen in the United States. Hmm. We have a caller, Nora from Logan. Nora, uh, glad you called. Me too. 
Um, the nice opportunity to, to uh, reminisce about something that made a very strong impression on me as a four-year-old. I distinctly remember um, this would have been me as child in Chicago, um, suburban Chicago, watching Bozo Circus uh, during the noon hour and the program being interrupted with the announcement. And I remember going, knowing something horrible had happened and going to my mother and a neighbor who were in the kitchen and telling them, and they came running into the living room, just complete shock. And I remember those three days of my family more than anything. I think, you know, a four-year-old to remember such a thing and it being just devastating. And I think my biggest effect was watching six siblings and both parents um, in this awful state of mourning and and depression and and just being so profoundly affected by that. And and we watched, I distinctly remember us all watching the funeral on on television. And um, one of the things that stands out real strong, and every time I hear it, it kind of evokes that feeling, is Barber's Adagio for Strings. And I don't know if that was, I don't know if it was played during, during the caisson, in the rotunda. I just distinctly remember that work and it being played at some point in time. And every time I hear it, it takes me right back to that period. Hmm. So it, it four years old, you, you still have those vivid memories. Vivid. Yeah. Vivid. And some of it is a blur. I mean, it, you know, most certainly. Um, I, I couldn't tell you one day from the next, um, but just that, that overall sense of um, a, real, a real grief set in in our, house, in our household. And um, I, I don't remember anything beyond that, you know, what was happening in, in neighborhoods, communities, et cetera. Um, but just the, uh, the TV was a, a definite companion at that point in time for all of us. So, um, And I do remember my siblings coming home from school. And and I was raised as a as a Roman Catholic, so they would have all been in parochial schools at mm-hmm. the time and and that sent home. Would have been an even extra connection to President Kennedy. The, Definite. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Definite. especially after the nineteen sixty election, where it was such an issue, and he handled it so well. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a great comment. And you know, when I was thinking when you we were talking, is that uh, it would be nice if people took a few moments and wrote down for their posterity how this affected them or some of the other events of their lives. And for historians to try to get that kind of feel, I think is really, really important because, uh, you know, you, you, we live in a world now of instant analysis and, uh, and to, to pause and reflect ourselves on how our family and those around us were affected, how the other students responded, that kind of thing, I think would be, would be really, really nice. And, to take that opportunity. I remember one of my most prized possessions is a uh, an autograph, autograph copy of President Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage, which was given to me uh, from Senator Ted Kennedy and uh, through one of our former students here, uh, uh, and uh, Nick Watts, who was one of his aides uh, as an intern. And uh, and when I stop and think of, of Senator Ted Kennedy's life, 
you know, to have his brother Joseph killed in World War II, to have his brother John Kennedy assassinated, to have his other brother Robert Kennedy assassinated, and and still to serve and to believe in the country and work for what you try to work for, uh, you know, you can forgive some indiscretions because the concept of service that President Kennedy tried to articulate and and exemplify is something that I think resonated down to young people. And it's why so many people through that 1960s when uh, we talked about the fork of the road, I, I think it was very, very significant in in the ultimate disillusion by the end of the decade of the idealism that he had called for in his first inauguration. Mm. That, that was part of what uh, Larry called it, the dark decade, I, I yeah. think. The, mm-hmm. Looking back, that that idealism uh, sort of dissolved a bit. Uh, we have uh, about uh, six minutes left uh, in, in the program, and we'd love to get your perspective, your thoughts, feelings, perhaps your memories, on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. That, uh, that anniversary is tomorrow. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, my memory uh, is not really a memory. It's from my mother. Uh, we were living in Great Falls, Montana. I was about a year and a half old. My sister Jane was uh, you know, about six months old. But Mom uh, tells us that she took us to uh, downtown Great Falls when President Kennedy was coming through. So I saw President Kennedy. I have no memory of it. Uh, that would have been, I assume, the, that western swing that he was making. I would guess so, yes. Uh, but I, but I still, uh, you know, remarked myself uh, that it holds a lot of emotional power, even though I don't have direct memory of it. I hear the reports, I hear, you know, the inaugural speech. Um, it it has it has an impact, uh, even on those who weren't even bored then. I think one of the other things that the why people felt so strongly about President Kennedy was he followed a pattern that President Eisenhower had used, and that was. Almost every week that he was in Washington, D.C., he held a press conference. And it was a very, very bantering kind of thing, joke, you know, a personal kind of thing. But, but, it was, but he touched with the people, and it was televised. And, and this plus the fact that, uh, that you know, the, a year earlier, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis— when he went on television and announced to the world what we were going to do, why we were going to do it, showed the evidence, and and then led the people through that crisis, and then, you know, the Berlin Wall thing, and then finally the nuclear test ban treaty, you, you, you have to put things in perspective that, that they're trying to really create a better world. And in that process, every once in a while, you look things straight in the eyes, like Dean Russ said, I think the other fellow just blinked. But in that response, people said, you know, that that we have a leader, and the leader can take us through these times and make a better world. And, you know, it was a Cold War time. Korea hadn't even been over with for a decade. And uh, it was just... Uh, it was a very personal kind of relationship. I think for some people, good. For some people, not so good. But on the other hand, uh, he was in the living room a lot. Mm. Uh, 
Let's go to another caller, Janice in Logan. Uh, thanks for calling, Janice. Welcome to the program. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Well, I'm older, so I was alive and married and had, I think, one or two children when it happened and and was a stay-at-home mom at that time. Uh, I, I was emotionally affected. It was so upsetting to me. And thinking back historically, uh, one of the things that I thought was wonderful was that we overcame a prejudice against having a Catholic president. Um, Unfortunately, I was sorry to see her, see when Mitt Romney ran, that same ugly prejudice reappeared in society and didn't seem that we'd overcome that as a country. Uh, but, you know, maybe with electing Obama, you see a lack of prejudice, which is, is kind of good. But uh, then again, you still see that it did. Uh, show its ugly face again with Mitt Romney and the prejudice about him being a Mormon. Um, but as far as Kennedy, he was young. He was a great leader. I think it gave the nation a great hope with the things that he inspired to do. And so, uh, just like you talked about this decade of sadness following, uh, it's hard to overcome that. It makes you lose faith in your government as well, that... He can't be protected, you know, a great leader that he was. And, yes, we have good presidents, but they aren't always as accomplished and have such high ideals as President Kennedy did. So that were my my feelings. Uh, and the conspiracy theories are all interesting, and you still have a question about what's the truth, really. Yeah, I don't that's think it's ever been settled. Yeah, that's it's still out there certainly. Thanks, Janice. Appreciate your perspective. You're welcome. Thank you. And just about oh, thirty seconds left, uh, Professor. Final thoughts. Well, I, I think that uh, one of the great things about the study of history is at times you're on a roller coaster ride, and uh, you know we we came out of the period a stronger nation. Uh, you know, through the 1960s, there was still a tremendous amount of things that were accomplished. And and learning more about yourselves and your capabilities and what you should do, I think the point she made about, uh, you know, overcoming prejudice is a work in progress. And uh, under the Constitution and its amendments, this is something that we should be able to do. It uh, It's difficult. It is on ethnicity. It is on religion. And, uh, you know, one of the most amazing things to me in, in the contemporary world we live in is that uh, so many of these fears and prejudices and anger and, and whether it's, you know, political frustration or things uh, still exist. And now, uh, you know, we live in a world of sound bites where no one seems to want to take the time to investigate and look at what's really taking place and what's at the causation and what we're trying to accomplish. And in those times, I think it wasn't that they were simpler. It was that that you looked for information in traditional ways. There was a trust level that... Uh, that you hoped that you could make the world a better place and you work to do that. And it, one of the things about the, the time was that you didn't care that much about money. You were caring about service. And I think that was very, very significant. 
Ross Peterson, Emeritus Professor of History at USU, has been with us. And uh, thanks for all of your comments. For producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month, featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters. Details at greenvalleyspa.com and USU's Anthropology Museum, presenting an illustrated lecture, Fighting and Foodways, by archaeologist Tiffany Tung, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Vanderbilt University, Friday, November 22nd at 6 p.m. in Old Main. Information is at anthromuseum.usu.edu. I'm Carrie Bringhurst. Each week at this time, we have been bringing you special segments from our Utah StoryCorps project. Today, we take the liberty of doing something different. Stored in the five folklore archives on the Utah State University campus are seven boxes containing information and oral history recordings from 39 members of Cache Community Connections. Among those recordings are comments from longtime Utah Public Radio friend Jack Keller, who spoke about his years volunteering with that Northern Utah religious and civic community organization. It was a way we connected both religious and, and civic. I was chair for the first year and a half. On November 10th, we received word of Jack's passing. Recognized as a humanitarian who traveled to third world countries finding ways to make water available for farmers, Jack was a founder of Keller Blissner Engineering and in 1980 referred to his career as an irrigation engineer as a love affair. I was born in Roanoke, Virginia on January the 5th, 1928. Um, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I just did the usual thing as in high school. Uh, you know, graduated from high school, and when I went to college, I left and I decided I want to go west to school. And so I somehow or another was attracted to the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. I had misread the uh, school catalog. I wanted to be an agricultural engineer, and I thought they had agricultural engineering at the University of Colorado now, and they didn't. I had misread the catalog, and I and I had I didn't know there was such a thing as aeronautical engineering, and I thought agricultural engineering. So I, I was sitting in the auditorium. We all got herded into the auditorium, and they called it for the aeronautical engineers, get up and go here. And, Civil engineers get up and go there, mechanical engineers, and so on. And so I'm sitting there at the end, and he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I came here to be an agricultural engineer. We don't have agricultural engineering here at Colorado University. You don't? I thought I saw it in the catalog. Let me see the catalog. And I looked at it. Of course, then I read aeronautical engineering. I said, what, what should I do? Well, it said the closest thing we have to agricultural engineering is civil engineering. So I went over to became a civil engineer. <laughs> I think I finished in 19, I think 53, BS in civil, and I went to Colorado State University and got a master's in irrigation engineering. So I finally got into agriculture. <laughs> and then... Uh, then I later on 
went and worked for a number of years, and then in 1960, I came here to get a PhD in, in agricultural engineering at Utah State University. While Jack and his wife Sally had always been committed to community, it was the destruction and loss of lives on September 11th in 2001 that led to his involvement in Cash Community Connections. Cash Community Connections was a result of the of 9-11. And at 9-11, we had a meeting that was called together because, you know, the shock had sent through America. It was called together by, I think, Frank Junkie, the pastor, and he was really the, the interim pastor, they call it, at the, at the Presbyterian Church. And at that meeting, there were various religious groups and, and the mayor, the, and the university. And when I say various religion, religious groups, he called in I mean, the, the Baha'is were there, the, uh, the Muslims were there, and we put together service. A couple things very critical in its workability and its longevity, and that was the, the LDS Church was very careful not to overwhelm it, and, and it was a very strong outreach from the LDS Church. It was a way we connected both religious and, and civic. And that was the difference, because there had been a religious group meeting, but there had never been a religious civic group. This brought us all together, and I made the comment, well, what are we going to do after this is over? Are we just going to go our merry ways as usual? And Frank said, uh, well, why don't you do something about that? And so I said, okay. And, and In fact, I guess I'm the reason that it made it through the first year or so. I was chair for the first year and a half. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 2. Introducing Fisa, Walnut Torpedoes, and Kalamata Olive Torpedoes.